I was on the Enron Executive Committee when the company went bankrupt. And I just witnessed firsthand uh, how a company can implode just due to poor ethics. I saw good people do bad things. It's not just about good people doing bad things. But it's also interesting to figure out why bad people do bad things and good people do good things, right? It focuses on what people do rather than what authorities say they should do. The advent of behavioral ethics was the advent of doing research on what people do and why they do it rather than telling them what they should do. And it might empower people to step forward and question things, even when it turns out they're wrong. How would you be able to train a teller to say, it's okay to tell a client no and we will back you up and you won't lose your job and you won't lose your health insurance and you're- Even if you're wrong. Even if you're wrong. Right. Behavioral ethics holds the promise of helping companies do the right thing. But will firms provide faculty with the access necessary to help them solve their deepest problems? Or will they just keep them locked up in the closet? This show is all about separating hype from fundamental change. I'm Paul Jarley, Dean of the College of Business here at UCF. I've got lots of questions. To get answers, I'm talking to people with interesting insights into the future of business. Have you ever wondered, is this really a thing? On to our show. This podcast is a little different. It was done over drinks and hors d'oeuvres before the college's Dean's Advisory Board meeting in September. We brought together five people with a common interest in ethics, had a conversation, and edited it down to what you're about to hear. Our guests were Meryl Bailey. Meryl is a four-time alumnus of the college. She's on our Dean's Advisory Board and has degrees in accounting and law, two fields with extensive codes of ethics. Scott Keith is regional president for BB&T in North and Central Florida. BB&T sponsors both an ethics class in the college, as well as the faculty member who teaches that course, Marshall Schmidke. Marshall is the BB&T professor of business ethics. He joined us for the evening via Skype because he was speaking at a conference in Nice, France. They are joined by Dr. Rob Folger. Rob is considered the father of behavioral ethics. He sits in an endowed position that was funded by our last guest. Stan Horton. We caught up with Stan a couple of weeks after the event and added his insights into the conversation. Stan is an alum of the college and the president and CEO of Boardwalk Pipeline Partners. Stan was the only member of Enron's top management team that was not indicted in the Enron scandal. He closed Enron. It is not a stretch to say that the biggest corporate ethical breach of the last century started a chain of events that led to a whole new way to study ethics, and that that is happening at UCF. My first question was for Scott Keith. Could you explain why BB&T has had a long-term interest in ethics and what it hopes to get out of ethics education? To BB&T, our people, the values that we have, um, is the culture of, of our organization. There, there are three non-negotiables in our organization, our vision, our mission, and our values. Um, uh, we want to be the best financial institution possible. But the only way that we do that is by living out 10 core values, which, which we, we deem the ethics of BB&T. Uh, we have 37,000 associates. We're bringing new ones on all the time. We think it's critical that we invest in the future of uh, not only BB&T, but the, the future of our, the markets that we serve. To do that, uh, we have the opportunity to team up with um, wonderful institutions like UCF's College of Business. And uh, for us to be able to partner with Marshall and have a course 
speaking to young-minded, young professionals with, with bright futures about ethics and the importance of that in business is helping us live out our mission. It's critical to our culture long term. We want to hire folks that live that way because they'll fit within our organization. Stan, tell me a little bit about your motivation for giving the gift that led to the ethics chair. Oh, that was pretty easy. I um, was with Enron. I was on the Enron executive committee when the company went bankrupt. I was the only member of the Enron executive committee that stayed during the bankruptcy. And I just witnessed firsthand uh, how a company can implode just due to poor ethics. I saw good people do bad things that I didn't really know if they knew they were doing bad things at the time, but some of them compounded themselves. And after you look back for a while, you realize that it was the culture of the company and that culture did not stress or recognize strong ethical behavior. And when you don't do that over time, the culture deteriorates and what happened at Enron happens. I'm gonna to turn to Rob. Rob, you're considered one of the founders of behavioral ethics. I'd, I'd like you to talk a little bit about how behavioral ethics maybe differs from traditional ethical approaches and training. Could you sure. Let me say, first of all, uh, thanks to Stan, because part of what behavioral ethics is today is because of him, because of his support. Ethics, for many years, in business schools, for example, it was dominated by philosophers. And so ethics was about ethical philosophy. Aristotle, right, if we want to go all the way back. And so the advent of behavioral ethics was the advent of doing research on what people do and why they do it rather than telling them what they should do. The kinds of things that Scott, for example, wants to be able to promote, how do you promote it? Uh, what motivates people besides the inspiration of, of the leadership of a company uh, when they're in the trenches? Marshall, do you think it's fair to say that behavioral ethics is the study of how and why good people do bad things? A lot of people would agree that that's a, that's a pretty reasonable place to start. But I think we go beyond that as well, because it's, it is interesting to try to understand why good people do bad things, but it's also interesting to figure out why bad people do bad things and good people do good things, right? My, my big epiphany came, um, I spent eight years as an academic fellow with the Ethics and Compliance Initiative. They're a group of about 60 or so chief ethics officers from Fortune 50 level firms and people from the SEC and VA and that sort of thing. And you don't have to spend very many years with a group like that to figure out what they're interested in is what levers do we pull to get the sorts of behaviors and the, sorts of, the sort of commitment uh, that we need to see among our 90,000 employees. How about, how about you, Rob? Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I think uh, that the experience of people in business and many times is they don't always know the levers to pull, the buttons to push uh, in a positive, promotive way. Merrill, you have degrees in two areas which have had a long history of ethical codes of behavior and training people to abide by those ethical codes of behavior. And, and so talk a little bit about what's been the traditional approach in accounting and in legal areas to questions of ethics and what you think might be the value of behavioral ethics or not. Well, to quote Marshall, my epiphany was realizing that two different professions, because I'm licensed as a CPA and also as an attorney, can have different ethical standards that are completely 
diametrically opposed. I don't think most professions realize that they have different ethical standards. So the ethical standard for a CPA is for auditors, they're supposed to keep everyone informed and share information and everybody's on an equal playing field. And attorneys, we have to advocate for one person and forget all the rest. I've got this information, I'm going to use this information and I'm not sharing it. And in fact, it would be a breach of my duty if I did share it. So I think that's part of the tension of CPAs working with attorneys because the CPA is like, well, if we all work together and if you gave up this we, and I gave up that, we'd all have a really great solution. And the attorney's like, screw you, I've got my client and I want all of pie. Every single profession that I deal with has a different ethical standard. Hmm. What would behavioral ethics have to say about that, gentlemen? About resolving those conflicts where ethical standards vary? Uh, it's interesting you bring that up. There's a topic that is, is one of our core topics. It's called role morality. And it's about the conflict of different standards in our, when the different hats that we wear. The technical definition of the term is when you would do something in a given role, like at work, that you wouldn't otherwise do outside. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example? Have you ever had a situation where the accountant ethics in you conflicted with the lawyer ethics in you? It primarily would have to do with negotiating a contract where I was representing two out of three partners and we had all the information as CPAs, we knew all the financials, but I was actually representing these two as an attorney and the other attorney did not, was not a CPA that was representing the third party and he didn't understand the numbers he just rolled over on something that was so, on a CPA level, was such an easy thing that he should have held his ground. But as an attorney, I was like, yeah, well, we'll just like, okay, and then I moved right on. Because it was in the best interest of my clients, and I was representing them as an attorney. So I had a duty to do that. Mm -hmm. Scott, what do you see as the main ethical dilemmas in your world? And how did you try to address those? They're very based on the constituents that we're talking about. Um, you know, generally, when we lend money out, fundamentally want to know two questions. Can you pay us back? And will you pay us back? <laughs> and we identified ethical challenges in our client selection during the last major recession, where we had individuals that could pay us back for a period of time, but chose not to. When we have our client selection and engage with our clients, we want to understand I'll, I'll say their ethical motivations. We want them to be like-minded to us and, and with us. Um, but they also have to trust us. Uh, they share personal information with us, business information with us. We have to be confidential in, in our professional um, endeavors with them. And, uh, and that trust generally is built over a long period of time. We've been around since 1872. We're, we're proud of the fact that we have become a trustworthy organization. But we have to earn that every day. And the other constituent are our associates. So when I think about our support uh, for the teaching and the encouraging of ethics in business through the university and the students that are able to uh, go through that, they're, they're learning a piece of what we hope when they look to apply to our financial institution that they see matches up with our culture. So it's important that we hire individuals that are going to support the cultural way we go about business. Uh, it's really important that when we do that, that we let them then uh, be who they are. And watching them do good and right things every day transparently, even when uh, we have to admit when we're wrong, is encouraging and good. When we miss that, when we make a mistake, uh, we want to be honest and open about it. Well, I want to jump in here just sure. a second. It's interesting that you would mention being honest and admitting your mistakes 
because uh, just the other day I was asked by a reporter uh, to talk about the uh, fraud case involving uh, SeaWorld, where precisely what they didn't do was to get out in front of it and admit what they'd done. And so the CEO lost his job, SEC filed a case, uh, and he had to pay a financial fee as well. Stan, tell me if I got this right. I remember you telling me that Ken Lay had come back from being chairman of the board to being CEO. And he picked up a rock and he thought, oh my God, I need to fix this. What he didn't know at the time, if I remember your story right, was that he was legally required to report it right then. Yeah, that was my belief. And knowing Kinlay, he was the son of a Baptist preacher. I first met him uh, back in uh, the early 70s when I went to work for Florida Gas. And he was a man that uh, if you looked at and knew you would stray, he had a very strong ethic. And I believe that, in my own belief, I don't think Ken understood what was happening at, at Enron. A lot of the day-to-day stuff he had uh, uh, given over to others. And then when uh, Mr. Skilling uh, left uh, Enron and Ken came back as CEO, it's my belief that uh, he didn't really know the uh, what had gone on and some of the financial structuring that uh, later proved to be uh, illegal. But as he found out about them, you have an obligation under security laws to report those. But if you're someone that has your entire persona tied up in a company, your financial net worth tied up in a company, who you are as a person defined by all of, all of that, there is a tremendous incentive to not disclose that and try to fix it, especially if you're someone that had a history of an entire lifetime of being able to fix things. To me, I look at the Arthur Anderson portion of that, and it, to me, breaks down to two different employees not knowing where the line was or being so tired they forgot. So the lawyer said to Arthur Anderson, delete the, delete the document, shred the documents, and the auditor did it. It was not illegal in the long run. They found out it was not illegal, but it was unethical on both sides to have deleted those documents. I would not have done it. And what I tell young CPAs and young attorneys coming up is you need to know that line and you need to go into an engagement knowing where the line is and you need to never forget where it is because you're going to get tired and you're going to have people pushing you and you're trying to please people, but you have to know where to hold the line. I I think that's where a culture of an organization comes in. If you feel like you can't raise your hand or identify an error, a mistake, or or uh, an egregious act that's going on, uh, then it, it likely can continue. And I think large organizations, small organizations, they have to, from a leadership perspective, foster a culture of, of being willing and, and comfortable transparently identifying and understanding that. Stan? I always challenge my human resource department come up with ways, and I must admit, I'm not sure that we've totally done it. How do we incentivize ethical behavior? Most compensation in a corporation is built around achieving financial goals, net income goals, cash flow goals, balance sheet goals. How do I take that and marry it with the kind of culture that you want to build in an organization? And I believe that culture, the foundation of it has to be built on a strong ethical behavior. As I tell our new hires, I just want you to do the right thing every time. Just do the right thing every time. Marshall, I've heard three different kinds of variables here that might influence whether people act 
in an ethical manner or a less than ethical manner. The first one, fatigue, maybe personal sort of situational issues. Secondly would be culture of an organization. The third would be incentives. Mm-hmm. and maybe misaligned incentive. Do you, do you have any sense from a behavioral ethics standpoint, which of those three categories of things is likely to dominate? Well, you sort of hit something close to me because I'm an ethics culture researcher. That's kind of <laughs> I mean. It was a softball, I mean. buddy. So of course, I think that's <laughs> And one of the reasons, and it's not that incentives don't matter because clearly they do, and people not thinking enough moves ahead is kind of that first step toward doing the perp walk. You know, most of these guys that you end up seeing doing the perp walk, they're not people who, you know, woke up six months ago and decided to engage in broad-based unethical practices toward their clients or employees or whatever. Some some do, clearly. But the lion's share of those folks basically made a bad decision that they didn't really think through far enough and then woke up the next morning and they saw they dug a little hole and they think they're doing their best to fill in that little hole. And next thing you know, there's another line gets crossed. And next thing you know, we're doing 10 years in uh, uh, Duluth Federal Prison Camp. I'm a guy who has committed a lot of years now to studying ethical cultures and ethical climates and kind of what makes those tick. And that's the one that I, that I end up kind of circling back to. The, uh, some of the big projects that we did while I was up with the ERC, one of the most surprising things we found out of that that when it comes to what really drives the average worker's decisions on a day-in, day-out basis was that it's those first-line supervisors where all of the action is. As far as the average employee is concerned, that immediate supervisor is the organization. And the kind of standards that 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 first-line supervisor sets has a bigger impact than top management, colleagues, all of those combined. And that's a culture thing, right? I mean, culture happens right down at the work unit level. Rob? I also want to add uh, a favorable word to economists, behavioral economists in particular. And the, the notion of nudges may, may not always have the best ethical flavor, but there definitely are cues, triggers in situations that can make a difference, positively and negatively, as well as the structure of the situation. I mean, sometimes we, we put employees in situations that don't incentivize them so much to cheat as, as encourage the need to, to use a workaround, uh, to stretch the rules. Uh, and that's, that's another one of the many issues. I, I don't always try to pin it down to one particular thing. Mm-hmm. Give, could you give me an example of that, of, of a situation where there's that nudge? Uh, well, I'll give you one that's a positive nudge, uh, and that is if we if we encourage people to make a commitment up front. I mean, something. I know this this sounds simple, but uh, having people sign something turns out we find from research that if they sign first, you know, an honor pledge first, take the oath, for example, right? yeah, sure. take the, mm-hmm. rather than at the end. Uh, that's a very simple little thing that makes a difference. Mm. But another one is uh, if if people have a chance to cheat. But before they do that, again, if you ask them to recall as many as they can of the Ten Commandments, they don't cheat as much. It doesn't matter whether they can actually remember them or not. <laughs> it's just a priming effect is exactly. what you're telling me. You know, Paul, in our organization, every year we recertify our 
acknowledgement and understanding and commitment to the code of ethics that we have. And we think it's very important. It, it is foundational to the culture that we, we strive to, to live out every day. And so some of the most important individuals in our organization are tellers. So we put structure in place to make sure that we don't inadvertently create a scenario where in the wrong moment at the wrong time, a good person uh, may, be con- may consider doing the wrong thing. There's a reason why tellers uh, need to balance their their drawer every single day. Um, and, it's, and it's because it's our depositors' money that we're taking care of, and it's a trust thing. And it's also, um, these are great professionals with hopefully long careers. Uh, we want them to do it with the confidence that, that there's, there's not something that might trip up. Uh, so I think structure in many roles within many organizations should help alleviate some of the potential of possible uh, cues that might lead you into doing something that, that you otherwise wouldn't want to do. Mm-hmm. Merrill, do accountants and lawyers regularly get training on ethics and ethical decisions here in the state of Florida? And what's that like? If you could improve it in a way, how would you do it? Both attorneys and CPAs get trained in ethics. And in fact, for the CPA exam and for the bar exam, there is a separate portion for each just on ethics. There is some room for improvement with the Florida Institute of CPAs for their ethics training because right now it pretty much consists of someone who has a certain amount of experience who is currently licensed reading from the book. It is the least entertaining or memorable experience of your life and you have to sit there for a couple hours a year. If they would bring in some talented or younger, not necessarily younger in age, but younger in experience teachers, they would have a better outcome. But that isn't that different, and I don't mean to make light of this, but that approach isn't that different from reading from a religious text. If I understand behavioral ethics, one of the lessons of behavioral ethics would be, yeah, that's probably not going to work out all that well. (laughs) Is that fair to say, Marshall? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the training issue is a really tricky one because most corporate training has really been focused a lot on the failures we have in ethical decision making. But you don't learn ethics the same way, I mean, you don't learn how to swing a golf club or play a piano by reading a book. Ethics is something you do. And I think that's one of the ways that those of us involved in behavioral ethics really take a different perspective on this. And that really has a strong implication for the way that we set up um, ethics training programs. The other component is it's not all about just making ethical decisions. You can, you can know the right thing to do and still be shut down in sort of face a roadblock in whether or not you carry through on that based on whether you care at all about the person on the other end of that action. If they're not morally relevant to you, then you, know, you can know all day long what the right decision is, but you're not going to carry through. And the final piece, I think, that turns out to be really important in corporate settings is people have to believe that even if they know the right thing to do and they care about the customers or the community or whoever it is that's on the the receiving end, that they have the ability to actually execute on that. There are lots of folks who would really like to be the ones to stand up and say, this stops now, but if they don't think they're in a position to actually make have any impact on things, they're not gonna carry through on what they think the right thing to do is. A couple of footnotes on what Marshall said. One, a marketing plug, and the other, an anecdote. The marketing plug is for Marshall and his wife, who wrote a terrific paper on this idea of roadblocks that get in the way of people acting ethically. This anecdote is about not learning from a book. I went to an ethics training program. 
sponsored by a large organization, we went to their campus, their training campus, and we had all sorts of authorities speak to us. The company that sponsored that was Arthur Anderson. One of the things that we really value in the college is engagement and bringing practitioners and researchers together. When I ask my practitioners, what's the biggest problem you would like to see faculty do research on in ethics that would help you out? I think it comes with having the backbone to say no. Uh, most people don't know that it's okay to say no or they're hesitant to say no and they've been put in a situation where they're expected to say yes to doing something that they may know is wrong. Scott? Yeah, and I, I think a little uh, hitting on actually the paper that, paper that Marshall co-wrote with his wife. If we had the ability to, at, at BB&T with our Leadership Institute, we, we dive into a lot of the biases that our teammates have and and we study that and and our leaders go spend a week at managing leadership dynamics to understand uh, themselves and how they interact with each other and and we we try to understand where we get in our own way and so in getting in our own way is can can we connect those dots to understand just to the point when unethical behavior is in front of us when there is a cue are we are we identifying the biases of those that might be shut down from saying it and being able to, as an organization, uh, clarify that we want them to step up in that situation, to raise their hand? And obviously, from an organizational perspective, more in, insight as to how do we continue to strive to have a culture of accepting and encouraging that um, and making sure that there's no harm or concern for someone that identifies that. Mm -hmm. But how would a teller know that he or she is allowed to say no? Like how how would you be able to train a teller to say it's okay to tell a client no and we will back you up and you won't lose your job and you won't lose your health insurance and you're even if you're wrong. Even if you're wrong. Right. Stan, do you have any policies or procedures in place for people who want to report unethical behavior? Yes, we do. First of all, we have a hotline that people can call and report uh, anonymously. Uh, those calls do not go to me. They go straight to our general counsel. You can remain unnamed, but we need enough information that we can research and verify the, whether the accusation is correct or not. Or you can go directly to the CEO if you want to, or you can go through human resources. Have you tried to measure the number of ethical lapses that you have in the organization each year? Only by looking at, if you say ethical lapses, I guess the answer to that would be no, because I'm not quite sure how to do that. I can, we can measure incidents that we've had. We can measure our safety record against the industry. But, you know, some of those things aren't really ethical lapses. Some of those things are just things that happen that, you know, equipment failure, you know, things like that. So I haven't been able to figure out total ethical lapses. Okay, time for our faculty to give back. If you had one or two key insights of behavioral ethics that you would want to make sure that a practitioner knew, that you thought was useful, that would add value to their day, what do you got, Marshall? I mean, I've talked about a couple of those here tonight. This focus on first-line supervisors. Those folks just get completely ignored. They don't get the attention anywhere nearly the impact that they have on the organization. So that's something that really has to be, has to be key. I mentioned another one previously about it's got to be more the... Uh, the, the training and the programs and such have to be something that work beyond just compliance, but it's got to go beyond that. And it's got to go beyond just thinking your way through ethical problems. You have to understand, you know, how to sort of put yourself in the, the shoes of the folks across the table from you and make sure, I mean, we talked about this one a little bit earlier, make sure that the folks have this 
have an understanding that when they decide to be the one to stand up, somebody's got their back. Make a little bit of a pivot on those two fronts in terms of the kind of training that gets done. These, these are quantifiable, measurable outcomes. Uh, one of the things that I came away from with the ERC group, a lot of those firms were high-tech manufacturing, defense contractors and such. These guys measure everything and they could make a pivot on a, a piece of training technology for 90,000 employees over a weekend and six months later, they were able to demonstrate in terms of quantifiable outcomes related to things like the amount of pressure that employees were feeling, their, the likelihood they would pick up a phone and actually report wrongdoing, all these things that they really wanted to see. Those are quantifiable outcomes. And so as part of the training program, we've got to have really solid quantified baselines on those things. And then as you start to pull levers, you see relatively quick improvements um, or at least changes, you'll know what's working and what's not for you. And lots of companies, I think, don't give adequate attention to that sort of quantifying and measuring aspect of ethics. They think it's a little fuzzier than that. But in the aggregate, you can really just watch the needles move on these things if you're careful about how you measure things up front and then continue to do that regularly as part of your, uh, your, your employee survey. Rob? We need to be more cognizant of human frailties. It's, it's not just people who are evil and, and, and malicious who do the bad stuff. That gets all the attention. That gets all the news. But the simple concept of the slippery slope, the, mm-hmm. the edging towards the, the line, the edge of the line. So that, that's one thing I'd say. And the other one, to piggyback on that, is that common sense can be a lot of it, but common sense is not always common practice. And we need to teach people how to put into practice some of the things that they already know. Is behavioral ethics a thing? Is there anything tonight that you learned that you thought was useful that was worth pursuing? Meryl? I think behavioral ethics is a thing because the more people that understand that there are morals or ethics and where the lines are and that they have the right to say no, the better off the society would be. Scott? Yes, I absolutely think uh, behavioral ethics is a thing. Uh, So I vote yes on that. I see it every day in the associates I get to work with. and, and, And I think that you can see it around in society. I really do. I do think that there needs to be continued collaboration with um, academia and businesses so that we can evolve and, and become better. And I, I love the idea of how do we continue to partner to, to get there. I think, that's, I think that's really important. Stan, do you think your money's been well spent? Uh, yes, I do. And when I looked up the definition of a thing, uh-huh. <laughs> it said it was an action or an activity or a thought. And I think Ethical behavior is an action. I think you choose to be ethical or not. I think it's an activity. I think it's a thought process that people uh, utilize. So yeah, if I didn't think that they were, uh, you know, onto you know something, I'd, I'd probably come talk to you. It's my podcast, so I get to go last. Marshall and Rob don't get a vote. They've devoted a good portion of their lives to studying behavioral ethics. One of the people in the audience called behavioral ethics old wine and new bottles. Ironically, she had worked for Arthur Anderson. Enron left a bad taste in her mouth. I suspect she thought that bad people who want to do bad things will find a way. That said, the key insight from behavioral ethics is that ethics is not squishy. It's measurable, prone to both positive and negative influences, and needs to be practiced every day if it's to remain resilient. It isn't something that you just train people to do on Thursday. First-line supervisors carry a lot of the burden here. And they need the support of higher-ups to ensure that things are done the right way rather than the expedient way. 
Is behavioral ethics a panacea? Of course not. But it certainly beats people reading from a book. Companies willing to partner with researchers can uncover actionable insights to improve ethical behavior. It really is a thing. What do you think? Check us out online and share your thoughts at business.ucf.edu slash podcast. You can also find extended interviews with our guests and notes from the show. Special thanks to my producer, Josh Miranda, and the whole team at the Office of Outreach and Engagement here at the UCF College of Business. And thank you for listening. Until next time, charge on. Internet killed the video star.